Welcome to Fast Asleep. So glad you're here. Our next two episodes are especially for a favorite group of loyal listeners. Hmm. Now imagine. It's breathtakingly beautiful. New Zealand. And it's 1921. And Catherine Mansfield, her pen name, a born and raised New Zealander, has just finished this class-conscious short story. It has a luxurious setting that was based on the author's childhood home. Uh, Let's get started. Tuck in, everybody, and enjoy the garden party. And after all, the weather was ideal. They could not have had a more perfect day for a garden party if they had ordered it. Windless, warm, the sky without a cloud, only the blue was veiled with a haze of light gold, as it is sometimes in early summer. The gardener had been up since dawn, mowing the lawns and sweeping them until the grass and the dark flat rosettes where the daisy plants had been seemed to shine. As for the roses, you could not help feeling they understood that roses are the only flowers that impress people at garden parties, the only flowers that everybody is certain of knowing. Hundreds, yes, literally hundreds, had come out in a single night. The green bushes bowed down as though they had been visited by archangels. Breakfast was not yet over before the men came to put up the marquee. Oh, where do you want the marquee put, mother? Oh, now, my dear child, it is no use asking me. I'm determined to leave everything to you children this year. Forget I am your mother. Treat me as an honored guest. But Meg could not possibly go and supervise the men. She had washed her hair before breakfast, and she sat drinking her coffee in a green turban with a dark wet curl stamped on each cheek. Josie, the butterfly, always came down in a silk petticoat and a kimono jacket. You'll have to go, Laura. You are the artistic one. Away Laura flew, still holding her piece of bread and butter. It's so delicious to have an excuse for eating out of doors. And besides, she loved having to arrange things. She always felt she could do it so much better than anybody else. Four men in their shirt sleeves stood grouped together on the garden path. They carried staves covered with rolls of canvas, and they had big tool bags slung on their backs. They looked impressive. Laura wished now that she had not got the bread and butter, but there was nowhere to put it, and, well, she couldn't possibly throw it away. She blushed and tried to look severe, and even a little bit short-sighted as she came up to them. A good morning, she said copying her mother's voice, but, well, that sounded so fearfully affected that she was ashamed and stammered like a little girl. Oh, uh, have you, have you come, um, is it about the marquee? That's right, miss. 
said the tallest of the men, a lanky, freckled fellow, and he shifted his tool bag, knocked back his straw hat, and smiled down at her. That's about it. His smile was so easy, so friendly, that Laura recovered. What nice eyes he had, small, but such a dark blue. And now she looked at the others, and they were smiling too. Cheer up, we won't bite, their smiles seemed to say. How very nice workmen were. Ah, oh, and what a beautiful morning. She mustn't mention the morning. She must be businesslike. <clears throat> the Marquis. Well, um, what about the lily lawn? Would that do? And she pointed to the lily lawn with a hand that didn't hold bread and butter. They turned, and they stared in the direction. A little fat chap thrust out his underlip, and the tall fellow frowned. Mm, I don't fancy it, he said. Not conspicuous enough. You see, with a thing like a marquee, and he turned to Laura in his easy way, you want to put it somewhere where it'll give you a bang slap in the eye if you follow me. Laura's upbringing made her wonder, for a moment, whether it was quite respectable of a workman to talk to her of bang slaps in the eye. But she did quite follow him. Hmm, a corner of the tennis court, she suggested. But the band's going to be in one corner. Hmm, gonna have a band, are you? said another of the workmen. He was pale. He had a haggard look as his dark eyes scanned the tennis court. What was he thinking? Only a very small band, said Laura gently. Perhaps he wouldn't mind so much if the band was quite small. But the tall fellow interrupted. Uh, look here, miss. That's the place. Against those trees over there. That'll do fine. Against the caracas? Mm, then the caraca trees would be hidden, and they were so lovely, with their broad gleaming leaves and their clusters of yellow fruit. They were like trees you imagined growing on a desert island, proud, solitary, lifting their leaves and fruits to the sun in a kind of silent splendor. Must they be hidden by a marquee? Oh, they must. Already the men had shouldered their staves and were making for the place. Only the tall fellow was left. He bent down, pinched a sprig of lavender, put his thumb and forefinger to his nose, and snuffed up the smell. When Laura saw that gesture, she forgot all about the Karagos, in her wonder at him, caring for things like that, caring for the smell of lavender. How many men that she knew would have done such a thing? Oh. Well, how extraordinarily nice workmen were, she thought. Why couldn't she have workmen for her friends rather than the silly boys she danced with and who came to Sunday night supper? She would get on much better with men like these. You know, it's all the fault, she decided as the fellow drew something on the back of an envelope, something that was to be looped up or left to hang, of these absurd, 
class distinctions. Well, for her part, she didn't feel them. Not a bit. Not an atom. Oh, and now there came the chalk, chalk of wooden hammers. Someone whistled and someone sang out, Are you right there, matey? Matey? Ah, oh, the friendliness of it. The, the, well, just to prove how happy she was, just to show the tall fellow how at home she felt and how she despised stupid conventions. Laura took a big bite of her bread and butter as she stared at the little drawing. Why, she felt just like a work girl. Laura, Laura, where are you? Telephone, Laura, a voice cried from the house. Coming! And away she skimmed, over the lawn, up the path, up the steps, across the veranda, and into the porch. In the hall, her father and Laurie were brushing their hats, ready to go to the office. I say, Laura, said Laurie, very fast, you might just give a squeeze at my coat before this afternoon. See if it wants pressing. Oh, I will, she said. And suddenly she couldn't stop herself. She ran at Laurie and gave him a small, quick squeeze. Oh, I do love parties, don't you? gasped Laura. Rather, said Laurie's warm, boyish voice. And he squeezed his sister, too, and gave her a gentle push. Now dash off to the telephone, old girl. Oh, the telephone. Yes, yes. Oh, yes. Kitty? Oh, good morning, dear. Come to lunch? Oh, do, dear. Delighted, of course. It will only be a very scratch meal. Just the sandwich crusts and broken meringue shells and what's left over. Oh, yes. Isn't it a perfect morning? Hmm? Oh, you're white. Oh, I certainly should. Oh, one moment, hold the line. Mother's calling. And Laura sat back. What, Mother? I can't hear. Mrs. Sheridan's voice floated down the stairs. Tell her to wear that sweet hat she had on last Sunday. Oh, Mother says you're to wear that sweet hat you had on last Sunday. Hmm? Yes. Good. One o'clock. Bye-bye. Laura put back the receiver flung her arms over her head, took a deep breath, stretched, and let them fall. Ah, <sighs> she sighed. And the moment after the sigh, she sat up quickly. She was still, listening. All the doors in the house seemed to be open. The house was alive with soft, quick steps and running voices. The green baize door, baize as a coarse fabric that led to the kitchen regions, swung open and shut with a muffled thud. And now there came a long, chuckling, absurd sound. Oh, it was the heavy piano being moved on its stiff casters. But the air, if you stopped to notice, was the air always like this. Little faint winds were playing chase in at the tops of the windows, out at the doors. And huh, there were two tiny spots of sun, one on the ink pot, one on the silver photograph frame, and playing too, 
darling little spots, especially the one in the ink pot lid. It was quite warm. A warm little silver star. Oh, she could have kissed it. The front doorbell pealed, and there sounded the rustle of Sadie's print skirt on the stairs. A man's voice murmured. Sadie answered, careless. Oh, I'm sure I don't know. Wait, I'll ask Mrs. Sheridan. What is it, Sadie? Laura came into the hall. It's the florist, Miss Laura. And it was indeed. There, just inside the door, stood a wide, shallow tray full of pots of pink lilies. No other kind. Nothing but lilies. Canna lilies. Big pink flowers, wide open, radiant, almost frighteningly alive on bright crimson stems. Oh, oh, Sadie, said Laura, and the sound was like a little moan. She crouched down as if to warm herself at that blaze of lilies. She felt they were in her fingers, on her lips, growing in her breast. Oh, it's some mistake, she said faintly. Nobody ever ordered so many. Sadie, go and find Mother. But at that moment, Mrs. Sheridan joined them. Hmm, it's quite all right, she said calmly. Yes, I ordered them. Aren't they lovely? She pressed Laura's arm. I was passing the shop yesterday, and I saw them in the window, and I suddenly thought, well, for once in my life, I shall have enough canna lilies. The garden party will be a good excuse. But I thought you said you didn't mean to interfere, said Laura. Sadie had gone. The florist man was still outside at his van. She put her arm round her mother's neck and gently, very gently, she bit her mother's ear. My darling child, you wouldn't like a logical mother, would you? Oh, don't do that. Oh, here's the man. He carried more lilies, still another whole tray. Bank them up, would you, just inside the door on both sides of the porch, please, said Mrs. Sheridan. Don't you agree, Laura? Oh, I do, mother. In the drawing room, Meg, Josie, and good little Hans had at last succeeded in moving the piano. Now, if we put this Chesterfield against the wall and move everything out of the room except the chairs, don't you think? Quite. Hans, move these tables into the smoking room and bring a sweeper to take these marks off the carpet in one moment, Hans. Oh, Josie loved giving orders to the servants and they loved obeying her. She always made them feel they were taking part in some drama. Tell Mother and Miss Laura to come here at once. Very good, Miss Josie. She turned to Meg. I want to hear what the piano sounds like, just in case I'm asked to, well, sing this afternoon. Let's try over, um, this life is weary. Pom, ta, 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 ta. the piano burst out so passionately that Josie's face changed. She clasped her hands. She looked mournfully and enigmatically at her mother and Laura as they came in. This life is weary, a tear a sigh, a love that changes. 
this life is weary a tear a sigh a love that changes and then goodbye but at the word goodbye and although the piano sounded more desperate than ever her face broke into a brilliant dreadfully unsympathetic smile aren't i in good voice mummy she beamed this life is weary hope to die a dream awakening but now sadie interrupted what is it sadie if you please ma'am cook says have you got the flags for the sandwiches dreamily the flags for the sandwiches sadie echoed mrs sheridan and the children knew by her face mm -hmm, that she hadn't got them let me see and she said to sadie firmly um tell cook i'll let her have them in ten minutes sadie went oh now laura said her mother quickly. Come with me into the smoking room. I've got the names somewhere on the back of an envelope. Oh, you'll have to write them out for me. Meg, go upstairs this minute and take that wet thing off your head. Josie, run and finish dressing this instant. Do you hear me, children, or I shall have to tell your father when he comes home tonight. Oh, and Josie, pacify cook if you do go into the kitchen, will you? I'm terrified of her this morning. Well, the envelope was found, at last, behind the dining room clock, though how it had got there, Mrs. Sheridan could not imagine. Now, one of you children must have stolen it out of my bag, because I remember vividly. Oh, here we are. Cream cheese and lemon curd. Have you done that? Yes. Okay. Egg. And Mrs. Sheridan held the envelope away from her. Well, it it looks like mice. Oh, it can't be mice, can it? It's Olive, pet, said Laura, looking over her shoulder. Oh, yes, of course, Olive. What a horrible combination it sounds. Um, egg and Olive. They were finished at last, and Laura took them off to the kitchen. She found Josie there, pacifying the cook, who did not look at all terrifying. I have never seen such exquisite sandwiches, said Josie's rapturous voice. How many kinds did you say there were, Cook? Fifteen? Mm-hmm. Fifteen, Miss Josie. Well, Cook, I congratulate you. Cook swept up crusts with a long sandwich knife and smiled broadly. God, Bruce has come, announced Sadie, issuing out of the pantry. She had seen the man pass the window. That meant, that meant the cream puffs had come. Godbers were famous for their cream puffs. Nobody ever thought of making them at home. Bring them in and put them on the table, my girl, ordered Cook. Sadie brought them in and went back to the door. Of course, Laura and Josie were far too grown up. To really care about such things. All the same, they couldn't help agreeing that the puffs looked very attractive. Very. Cook began arranging them, shaking off the extra icing sugar. 
Um, don't they carry one back to all one's parties? said Laura. Hmm, I suppose they do, said practical Josie, who never liked to be carried back. They look beautifully light and feathery, I must say. Mm-hmm, have one each, my dears, said Cook in her comfortable voice. Your ma won't know. Oh, impossible. Fancy cream puffs so soon after breakfast? Why, the very idea made one shudder. All the same, two minutes later, Josie and Laura were licking their fingers with that absorbed inward look that only comes from whipped cream. Let's go into the garden, out the back way, suggested Laura. I want to see how the men are getting on with the marquee. They're such awfully nice men. But the back door was blocked by Cook, Sadie, Godber's man, and Hans. Something had happened. Oh, clucked Cook, like an agitated hen. Sadie had her hand clapped to her cheek as though she had a toothache. Hans' face was screwed up in the effort to understand. Only Godber's man seemed to be enjoying himself. It was his story. What's the matter? What's happened? There's been a horrible accident, said Cook. A man killed. <gasps> a man killed? Where? How? When? But Godber's man wasn't going to have his story snatched from under his very nose. Now, you know those little cottages just below here, miss? Know them? Of course she knew them. Well, there's a young chap living there, name of Scott. He's a carter. His horse shied at a traction engine, corner of Hawk Street this morning, and he was thrown out on the back of his head, killed. <gasps> Dead! Laura stared at the Godber's man. Dead when they picked him up, said Godber's man with relish. They were taking the body home as I come here. And he said to the cook, he's left a wife and five little ones. Josie, come here. Laura caught hold of her sister's sleeve and dragged her through the kitchen to the other side of the green baize door. There. She paused and leaned against it. Josie, she said, horrified. However are we going to stop everything? Stop everything? Oh, well then, all right. This episode stops right here, but don't miss the conclusion in our next episode. Good night.